0: Hello, and welcome to Grave Escapes, the podcast that helps those who've died tell their stories once again. Hey, Francis. I've been thinking a lot lately about the intersection of fandoms. We'll go with fandoms as a word. Okay. So think think about this. Let's, let's go back to elementary school here. Do you remember what a Venn diagram is? I do. The circles that intersect, yeah? The circles intersect. In the middle, it's supposed to be things that the two have in common. hmm So I found that with these specific fandoms that I've been thinking about, one, you have the circle that's like, death okay and the other circle are disney adults okay and while there are two different fandoms there there are some people and i think it's a large amount of them who live in the middle
1: i mean i
0: definitely live in the middle i i want to talk about this and i want to like kind of like parse this out i was never a disney adult I actually hated Disney with a passion. Yikes. And thanks for the judgment. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't come here for that today. <laughs> but I actually went a couple of years ago to Disney World for the first time as an adult. And like, I still can't explain to you why I like it. But I do. Because it's Disney. But no, that's not a good reason. <laughs> they're not a great
1: company. No, but
0: like, also they're Disney. It's crazy because you just stating the same point multiple times doesn't actually make it right.
1: <laughs> but it means something different every time I say it.
0: That's fair. <laughs> but so I was thinking about this and I've actually met a lot of people who it seems like they love Disney, but they also love cemeteries and death and all these kind of like morbid things. Am I just the only person who's observed that?
1: Um... Yeah, I actually hadn't noticed that, but now I'm intrigued to know how many of my friends are Disney death heads, I guess.
0: (laughs) Fair. Huh. Not on a t-shirt. But, so with that, I actually thought we would have a guest on today.
1: That sounds like fun.
0: It's the head of Walt Disney. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so no, no. Uh, But yes, joining us this podcast, we're bringing in our second guest ever. We're actually going to bring in a good friend of mine, and I feel like by proxy Francis's. is. Uh, this is Dan Maselli. He is an all-around, I guess, Disney adult is the way to describe it, and a co-host of the forthcoming podcast, A Cynic's Guide to Disney. So with that, hi, Dan.
2: Hello, and hello to all my fellow Mouseka-Dead fans.
0: Mouska dead fans, I like that. It's like, oh. but I mean... Let, so, now, Dan, now that you're in on this conversation, let's, let's talk about this. But have you noticed it, too? It's, like, the subsection of Disney adults who, like, only want to ride Haunted Mansion, who, like, are the people who try to get their ashes spread on the ride when they're dead. Like, it's a thing. Caitlin,
2: are you sure you're not just projecting?
0: <laughs> it's possible. I don't actually want, one, to be cremated, and two, I feel like I don't want to be on the Haunted Mansion for the rest of eternity. Just saying. I feel like I'd wanna if I'm picking
1: a ride, it'd be Tower of Terror. Like if there's a ride to ride for all eternity, it'd definitely be Tower of Terror.
0: Like solely for the Twilight Zone theming, or no,
1: solely for the sheer like stomach-curdling drop. I love that
0: ride. I've actually never ridden it, but we're get- we're getting off on a t- tangent here. We're come back to the death, Francis. <laughs> Damn it. This is what I've noticed is that there tends to be a darker subset of Disney adults. I would like to think that I am in that subset. But with that, Dan is actually going to talk to us tonight about the man himself, Walt Disney.
1: Excellent.
0: So I guess to quote a very famous Disney line, welcome, foolish mortals.
2: Excellent. So Walter Elias Disney. A lot of people, when they hear the name... Disney, they just imagine th- they just Im- go right to the theme parks. They go to the movies. They don't really think about uh, the man who created all of this. He passed away in 1965. Uh, I'm sorry, 1966. He was 65 when he passed.
0: Oh, that's kind of young. Yeah.
2: Well, when you smoke unfiltered cigarettes for your entire life, that tends to mm. shorten your life expectancy some.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: So, Walt, and I know this is. At least uh, half of the hosts believe in this very deeply, that Walt, unfortunately, is not cryogenically frozen and buried underneath the castle.
0: I personally do not feel like that can be proven. Wait, sorry, what? Do you not know this story?
1: No? Why would he be cryogenically frozen? Is he? He's Dan,
0: have at it. I, I will stay, step back on this one.
2: Okay, so this is a fun conspiracy theory that had a lot to do with you know, Walt's vision for the future, he was just very forward thinking with a lot of stuff and he really just wanted to see kind of technology advance. So when he passed, everything happened so quick. He was cremated uh, a couple days after he had passed and um, he was laid to rest um, at Forest Lawn Memorial Park, which is where, you know, there's a memorial there for him. Mm. But what people just kind of ran with is that the reason that there was the two day gap between being cremated and him passing. Was so that he could be cryogenically frozen, so that when the cure for his type of cancer that ultimately killed him was found, they could bring him back, and Walt would basically walk the earth again. Is what this conspiracy theory is. It's been around since he died. It's, I mean, it was just a fantastical thing, and you know, a certain somebody here loves this one.
1: At least he's not hanging out at the Seven Eleven with Elvis and JFK. But like, that's a thing. I get okay.
2: Everybody knows Elvis and JFK were hanging out in um, a retirement home.
1: Oh, fair. Okay. That's fair.
0: <laughs> I don't say that I believe it so much as I want to encourage other people to believe it. <laughs> Peddler of conspiracy theories. I love peddling conspiracy theories. It makes me laugh. That's fair. I will, for the sake of this and keeping our listeners out of this listening experience within an hour, uh, I will concede that Disney is not buried his head, at least under one of the castles. So Dan, first off, Elias going to have to move past that, but tell us about Mr. Disney.
2: So Mr. Disney, he was born, um, 1901 in Chicago, you know, from a very young age, he was very much an artist. You know, he loved to draw, loved to do all of that type of stuff. Later on, um, in his childhood his family wound up moving to Missouri which would wind up really shaping who he was and a lot of his visions for the future and the kind of nostalgia and the Americana that he felt just really embodied the country and like represented the country as he grew up he started taking you know just basically any art courses that he could take to the point where he was delivering newspapers and trying to take some art classes, basically sleeping through his day school so that he could focus on his artwork. And I so it's great to suffer for that. But for him, it's like art in general was just a lifelong passion of his. And that's ultimately how he became who he was. What he did early on in the um, early 1920, the company that he had been drawing for, he was laid off with one of his good friends. And they, so what they did is they set out and they started their own business and they started doing just some animations, just some small type of stuff that they could do. And they wound up selling, uh, some cartoons, uh, as they were sold as Newman's Lathograms. They were, the first six of them were basically based on Aesop's fables. And that was kind of what they were modeled after. And that, that was really the first start of what Walt was doing to kind of, build where he was going. Ultimately what he wound up doing they, he started bringing up some more animators and the laugh they weren't providing enough money to keep the company going so Walt started producing an Alice in Wonderland based show and it, what it was was a 12 minute short essentially it was a one reel film uh, and what it was it was basically a mixture of live action and animation that he was trying to do to kind of tell that story
1: Cool.
2: He tried to sell that, but nobody was really picking it up. So it just that didn't go anywhere initially. Ultimately, in 1923, Walt wound up moving out to Hollywood. Um, his brother had tuberculosis; he was, you know, in not great shape. So Walt went out there, um, and he was also trying to. Um, he also wanted to become a live action film director. That's really where Walt's passion was. He wanted to get into that. Um, ultimately, and that's where he wanted to go.
0: Why does everyone have tuberculosis? Holy god.
1: And my second question, is that the money brother or a different brother? The money brother? I couldn't remember his name, but I know he did the finances for Diz for like Oh all so Disney Roy students. doesn't
0: die of tuberculosis. Cool. Spoiler everyone.
2: Way to go, Caitlin. Ruin the story. I mean, Sorry. <laughs> I,
0: I can't believe he had tuberculosis. Now the question is, did he know Emerson sixty years before? Um, clearly
1: he got it from Emerson's (laughs) great-granddaughter.
0: There you go. All right, so,
1: sorry.
2: It's the 20s. Didn't everybody have tuberculosis then at that point?
1: I feel like every person we've covered in this podcast has either had or known someone who had tuberculosis.
0: Yeah, no, I actually, I mean, the percentage is at least, I think, 80% at this point. So I'm glad we're we're keeping that going.
1: (laughs) I was not expecting this. Okay, sorry.
2: (laughs) Sorry. So to pick up where we were, Ultimately, uh, a film distributor in New York, Margaret Winkler, uh, she was losing rights to a couple of the properties she had, one of which was Felix the Cat, their cartoons. And she needed something new to work with. So what she did was she signed a contract with Walt and his company for the Alice that he had and wanted to make um, six episodes of it and then two further, the option to make two more series of it at six episodes apiece. So um, at that point, that was the birth of the Disney Brothers Studio, which ultimately became the Walt Disney Company. Uh, they created their company so that they could make these episodes and like produce the films that they needed. Walt was able to convince Walt was able to convince a few people to move out to the West Coast to be with him. One of them was his old animation friend, and they all relocated out there. Um, and early in 1925, as part of this was all going on. He hired an inker named Lillian Bounds, and shortly after that, they were married. Uh, they were just—that's you know, how he met his wife. Was through through that whole process. When they got married, Lillian really wasn't somebody who wanted to be out in public. She really just liked to kind of be just a private person. She just wanted to be the mom at home. So they had their they had their two daughters. One, Diane, was you know, their natural born child. And then there was Sharon who they adopted um, three years later. And that was not something that they ever shied away from. They talked about the fact that she was an adopted child, but they also at the same time didn't like anybody else talking about the fact that she was an adopted child. So that was a very thing for him where it's like, he's always just been people or family and that's that. And just don't move on or just move on from it. And
1: I'm getting a very do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do vibe from him.
2: Yeah, Walt was a, um interesting person. <laughs> and one thing that Walt was... And, and Lillian at the same time, they were very, very careful and protective of their daughters. They didn't really want them being in the public eye whatsoever. There were really no pictures, nothing of them. And a lot of that had to do because of the Lindbergh baby.
1: Oh, God, yeah.
2: <laughs> because of that, they were just so, like, We don't want anything to happen to our kids, so our kids basically, we have them, but they don't exist to the outside world as far as the greater public is concerned, because they didn't want them to be anything, so a little aside there.
1: That makes sense. In
2: 1926, the distribution of the Alice series that Walt had been working on, um, it was handed over to Charles Mintz, the film producer, and... Walt and Charles did not have the greatest relationship just in general. They worked together, but they really didn't like each other a whole lot. Alice ran until 1927, and Disney was kind of, uh, he was just getting bored with it. He was like, I'm done doing this. It's been a couple of years. I want to do something else. And he wanted to move away from that mixed formatting um, just to go pure animation. Because he, So he's made that transition in his life at this point where it's like, He really wanted to do live action, but he's finding that he's really enjoying the art form of animation. And that's something that he really wanted to go into. So as he went on, he kept trying to establish different stuff. He wanted to make a larger fee to kind of keep expanding the business to make it better. And part of doing that was he wanted to create Oswald the Lucky Rabbit and make stories based on Oswald. Walt really wanted to do something with him. Ultimately, he wasn't able to do it just simply because Universal um, had the rights to distribute um, any new material of that. And he just wasn't able to he wasn't able to get Walt. So he and in doing so, Mints also um, took away a lot of the artists like hired from Disney. So he lost some of his people to Mints, and Walt was had a lot of restrictions that were going to be thrown at him to do some other stuff. So at that point, Walt just kind of went off on his own a bit and tried to figure out what to do. So his childhood friend, Iworks, who he worked with, the two of them created Mickey Mouse to replace Oswald. That was going to be their character. And initially, it was something that... Walt had a bit of a different vision for him, wanted to name him Mortimer Mouse really just the design was a lot different than what he wound up being. But ultimately his wife thought that Mortimer was just way too pompous and just kind of like pretentious. So, like, how about Mickey? Like Mickey Mouse is, you know, it's more of a snappy, more of a fun name,
0: more of a, like you cross him and you're going to end up at the bottom of the ocean type thing.
2: Yeah, exactly. An
1: alligator in swamps. Yeah.
2: And that really, that really got things going. And ultimately, the, the promotional sketches that iwerks was doing because he basically was the one animating them, and then Walt was the one who was voicing Mickey. So Walt was the one that basically gave him his soul, and you know, Iworks was the one that gave him his physical appearance. So it's kind of the combination of the two of them. But when people think Mickey, it really is Walt because Walt is the one that voiced him, gave him that personality, and that's what people know.
1: Wait, you mean that high-pitched, giggly voice that Mickey Mouse had is Walt Disney? Yeah. Holy God. Fuck. I hate that voice. I love it. I think it's adorable, but it sounds nothing like his speaking voice. Yeah,
2: until 1947, he did, Walt- he did Mickey's voice.
0: Wow. So I'm not going to lie to you. If there is a hell, I'm obviously getting sent there. And <laughs> Satan will sound like Mickey Mouse. Like, that mm. is horrible for me okay learning new things wow mind blown yeah
2: yeah it's not something people really think of they think of him more as like an animator of the mind behind everything but he was very involved just to get it off the ground
1: you have those like iconic pictures of him like at the desk the drawing desk with like pictures of mickey under his pen
2: he did do some of the artwork but a lot of it was more of his partner that was doing that type of stuff. I mean, I'm not going to diminish what Walt did, but as time went on, he did less and less of the actual artwork,
0: wow. and had other
2: people do that for him.
0: Well, yeah, that's that's capitalism. Exactly, that makes sense. Wow, Mind So, wait, so basically, Walt is Mickey.
2: Yeah.
1: So that picture, that like iconic statue slash, I was thinking the statue of them holding hands. It's like, oh, this is just two parts of the same person.
2: Basically, and that—that's the whole point of the statue.
0: I didn't know that. I love that.
2: You know, Ah. partners, but that's really just two parts of the same person.
0: I love that. What would my statue be holding, Winston? My dog, my pug. It would be like me and him touching all like the Sistine Chapel. (laughs) That would (laughs) be my statue. Sorry, anyway, Dan, talk to us more about uh Walt Disney aka Mickey Mouse. Wild.
2: So, Waltie Mouse. Uh, <laughs> for- oh, yeah,
0: that's a thing. We're d- Yep, forever. <laughs> Seriously, this episode is producing
1: so much merch. We need a t-shirt that says Waltie Mouse.
0: <laughs> Hashtag dead in Disney. <laughs> <laughs> that's on the back. Yeah, right. With, like, our names. Anyway, sorry, Dan, continue.
2: Okay. Now, Mickey's first appearance, which everybody thinks, you know, with, with Steamboat Willie being the first actual thing, uh, he first actually appeared in a single test screening. Um, it was a short called Playing Crazy. Um, and it was a second little thing called The Gallopin Gaucho. But those failed to find a distributor. So those weren't released out to the mainstream. It was kind of like a one-off showing that they had. Ultimately, after... Basically, there was a musical, The Jazz Singer, uh, the music that was part of that movie, it really inspired Walt to try to you know, add more audio elements into his, his work. So he used, um, synchronized sound for the first time on his third short, which was steamboat Willie. And that was actually the first post produced, um, sound cartoon. So the way that they had done that, and it was just a brand new way to do it. And as soon as that went out, that really set things off. And, um, Disney signed a contract with a former executive, Pat powers of universal. And, he wound up signing a deal to use the Power Cinephone recording system. And uh, Cinephone actually became the new distributor for Disney's early cartoons, which became immediately popular and just very strong. And Walt was very focused not only on the animation but the sound, and part of that was he actually hired hired a professional composer and arranger, uh, Carl Stalling, who wanted to continue doing stuff and build it, so he built a lot of he really just kept building the sound and really trying to do things like silly symphonies. And that was something that he really wanted to bring in and just use music, use the animation as a way to really tell the story. Ultimately, the series was incredibly powerful, but Walt and Roy uh, felt they weren't receiving the rightful share of the profits from there. So um, in 1930, Walt tried to trim some of the cost of the process by urging Iwerks to. Stop with some of the the practice of animating every single cell, and going to the more the more widely used animation style, where you, you draw the the important pieces like the key poses, and then you let just some lower paid assistants just kind of do the in between poses and just kind of sketch them out. So it was really kind of a mix of two different artists or multiple artists to come up with the whole thing. Walt really wasn't it, that really didn't go over overly well. So what. Walt did was he tried to get more money from Powers and Powers said no and then just basically stole Walt's animator iWorks to work for him directly and just cut Walt out of it
0: so I'm noticing another pattern in his life mm. and that is that he kind of keeps getting taken advantage of yeah
2: yep he's trying to do something different and he keeps trying to get more and people just like nope we're just gonna do this without you and cut cut you out and that was a lot of what happened to him early on.
0: I mean, I would I would just say that if the same problem continues happening repeatedly in your life, a little bit of introspection <laughs> is required. Yep.
1: Well, cl- clearly he introspected his way out of this because
0: Disney. Yeah, no, like I get that, but uh, that sucks.
2: Yeah. And to add insult to injury, once IWorks was signed away, Stalling just resigned immediately. And because he thought without iWorks that Disney was just done, like the studio was going to close. So he thought he thought it was a sinking ship and just jumped and wanted out. That triggered Walt to just outright have a nervous breakdown uh, late in 31. And he just like shut down. He blamed powers um, for it and, you know, just overworking. So he and his wife, they just took off to Cuba and Panama for a while and just said, the hell with this, we're going out and we'll be back.
1: I mean, can I get a prescription for that? (laughs) Uh, You you had a nervous breakdown. Here, your prescription is to go to Panama.
0: I'm not gonna lie; like I, my mental health would be so much better. People just kept being like, "Well, remove yourself from the situation. Here, fuck off to this random place. Travel internationally."
1: I gotta say though, like worst decision that guy made in his life was to quit Disney Studios and be like, "This is gonna close."
2: Yeah, was, I'm the composer and all this, but you know what? I'm, I'm out.
1: I'm out. <laughs> Sorry. I mean You
2: look at it from Walt's perspective, he lost his animator and his music guy all at once. And it's like, that's just a major hit.
1: This is the, uh, what is it called? that The, in alchemy, the thing that like boils down to like the purest form. Like this is the crucible that uh, <laughs> created Disney.
2: <laughs> Ultimately, it worked out for Walt, as obviously we all know.
0: <laughs> I mean, did it? Did it. <laughs> he is dead. I'm just saying.
2: Fun fact: Everybody who's lived has died. Caitlin, what? so I know oh, it's crazy, shit. but except, yeah.
1: Except who's the guy who did have his head frozen? Was that Ted Williams?
0: <laughs> okay, but like you guys could have told me that everyone dies before eleven episodes into this podcast. I'm just saying. Clearly, I, I dropped it's a, a shocker,
2: long. but we just figured <laughs> to rip that bandaid off and really just try to help.
0: Yeah. All right, so Walt gets screwed over yet again.
2: And when he comes back, um, he was actually able to sign a contract with Columbia Pictures to pick up and to. So they were going to distribute the Mickey Mouse cartoons because they were still doing really well. They were doing great internationally, so he still had distribution for him. So he still had momentum with that with Mickey. So that was helping. Um, Walt always, you know, as we know, he loved new technologies and trying to do new things. So he was actually. He filmed Flowers in the Trees in 1932, and he filmed it on three-strip Technicolor, which oh. at the time was huge. And what he did was he actually was able to negotiate a deal, giving him the sole right to use the three-strip process. Uh, three, yeah, three-strip process from 32 all the way to August 31st of 1935. So that's he impressive. Was, he really so-
0: covered his ass.
2: He did, and he learned his lessons from things that had happened. So basically all the silly symphonies that he made from that point on, they were all in color, which was a huge jump for him because he had the ability to do that. And it it did great. And Flowers and Trees was so popular, he actually won the inaugural Academy Award for the Best Short Subject Cartoon at the 1932 Awards. Hey. Wow. Wow. And um, he also was nominated for another film in that category, Mickey's Orphans. And he got an honorary award for creating Mickey Mouse as a result of it.
1: Everyone was like, this guy's the coolest. Here, have some stuff. He got an award for creating himself. <laughs> yeah, basically. I would I would like that award. <laughs> Talk about self-actualization. Like, wow. Cool.
2: <laughs> and as a producer, I mean, he ultimately, over the course of his career, he won 22 Oscars out of 59 nominations. So, I mean, he was prolific when it came to that.
1: I know that sounds like, a it. obviously, that's a crap ton. But, like, somehow it feels like he should have won more?
2: But you think about a, a lot of, like, the big Disney things that you think of w- was more of the Disney renaissance from the 80s on. That's true, Where a lot of people think there. of, which was well after his passing. But, I mean, he, he was obviously incredibly influential to get there. But Walt, you know, early on was just the driving force behind everything. Yeah, that's fair. So as things were going on, it just started going great for him. Um, Then in 33, he produced The Three Little Pigs. It was basically described that one as the most successful short animation of all time. It won another Academy Award for the short subject cartoon. And because he was starting to do so well, the staff kept growing. And his studio staff was actually close to 200 by the end of 1933. Wow. So he went from losing everything for a while they're having a breakdown to just two years later basically rebounding and just his company is going full tilt again as far as the animation went and a lot of it had to do with he really he realized how important telling stories was like just gripping stories that would hold interest not just an animation like hey look this is cute and here's formulaic like, thing like he actually wanted to tell stories through it that would make you continue to watch So at that point, he invested in um, a story department that was completely separate from the animators. That story department had their own storyboard artist that would basically set up everything the plan, and then he had the animators that, once the storyboard was set up, the animators would come in and they would do their thing. So he really had this whole process to get as many people involved to really get input in and to get these stories going really well. And that's really what kicked off ultimately what was referred to as the golden age of animation, which was from 34 to 41, which is where Walt really just started going. That was Walt thought that longer cartoons like a feature length would, could be more popular. It could make could make more money. So it, the studio actually worked for four years on making snow white and the seven dwarfs.
0: That movie took four
1: years.
2: It did. I
0: hate that
1: movie. My grandmother saw that in theaters when it, uh, I think when it was released, she was a child. Wow.
2: And that film was, a lot of people in the industry at the time, they were basically saying that this was dumb, it was going to bankrupt the company. It was actually nicknamed Disney's Folly, because it was just, they thought it was just such a terrible idea to make a full length cartoon. Nobody's going to watch this, you're going to lose all kinds of money.
1: That's why I feel like th- th- this exact thing is why Disney's like the best moniker, I think, to apply to him is futurist. Absolutely. Yeah, he's an animator. Yeah, he's an innovator, but he's a futurist. Like, he could tell, he, like, he knew what was up. He should have cured yeah.
2: TV. <laughs> <laughs> he was really a futurist, he would have known he was going to get cancer and solve that first. But Yeah, know, what the hell,
0: out. man? Priorities, man. <laughs> so, I mean, Snow White is a rousing success. Poof.
2: It was. But the thing that people don't really know, and you think about the time, so this is... Is that she's, imp-
0: like, 14?
1: It's a it's a fairy tale.
2: <laughs> it was a different time, Caitlin. Blah, 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 you know, all that stuff.
1: <laughs> but it's a fairy tale. Like, the everything's weird in fairy tales. Yeah, like kissing women without their consent. Yeah, whatever.
2: You know, a 14-year-old living with seven short men. I mean, it's fine.
1: And a lady with poisoned apples trying to kill children. Like, whatever.
2: So ultimately when it was all said and done, it went three times over budget to create Snow White.
0: Yowza. How much do you know how much?
2: Oh, I do. We're getting to oh. that. Oh now, no. This number in early nineteen thirties. It cost one point five million.
1: <gasps> oh no. Oh <laughs> my god.
2: Now if you just think about the economics of that time, that is just an absolutely mind blowing, insane number.
0: So like it economical. economical. What year was this?
2: Well, it took it was over a 4 year period, so in 34 is really when he was starting to go with that and it premiered in 1937.
0: I'm going to do the math. I got to figure out the inflation on that. That's insane. That's astronomical.
2: Yeah. Like
1: people were making like a couple bucks a week.
2: Right? Yeah. Right? It was nothing. Like he was paying some people, you know, decent wages like 100 bucks a week for stuff. So it's like you think about that and 1.5 million to make this.
1: Holy God. I mean,
2: ultimately it worked out because Snow White made six and a half million. So it was the most successful sound film that had ever been made up to that point.
0: So I can tell you that inflation, if we started in 1933 and put it to today, that would have been (laughs) $33,726,461.
2: That's crazy to produce an animated film.
0: However, if you do do the profits, uh, if you want to change that up, um, it would have been the equivalent of making $146 million in today's world.
2: I mean, it definitely made money and it ultimately it, it
0: paid for money. itself.
2: It paid for itself and a lot of other stuff. So it really, that's really what kicked off the golden age because after that, that's when you got, after Snow White was done, you had Pinocchio, you had Fantasia, neither of which were really great at the box office. But part of that actually got hurt because World War II had started in 39. So the international market for these movies, which he relied pretty heavily on for a lot of his stuff, it just wasn't there because of the war. Mm. So he moved on to some other stuff, and they were starting to... It took a loss on both pictures, so the studio was actually in a lot of debt at that point. So to do that, to try to get around that or try to save themselves, they did the first public stock offering in 40. Walt um, was sometimes not the best with dealing with his staff.
0: Hmm. Bit
2: of kind of a insensitive person at times. Can't hmm. figure that out from some of the stuff that went on. His staff actually went on strike for about a month in 1941. Oh. So there was just nothing going on. And this was during the production of Dumbo. So Dumbo actually got held up because of that. Ultimately, Dumbo wound up being you know a, a good movie for him because it was produced inexpensively. So it got a positive reaction and did well financially, but you know, there was um, the national labor relations board had to get involved to end the negotiation. Like it was kind of ugly between him and his animators. Ultimately it worked out. The strike was over. And because of the strike and the financial situation of the company, a bunch of animators left the studio and his relationship, with a lot of the staff was pretty strained as well. So that caused a couple of problems later on for him.
0: If only he had just like let them date each other.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Just fish off the company pier. It's fine. Nothing, nothing can go wrong there.
0: Everything's fine. Everything's totally fine.
2: So with the financial issues and the war going on, part of what they did just to try to keep the Disney name out there and try to promote a little bit to try to get some money was that's where they started making the Donald Duck cartoons to promote war bonds. And that's where you had all of those Fun little videos from Walt Disney World. Oh, uh, you know, not from Walt Disney World. Um, you know of of the war uh, of World War Two when you know we see Donalds having all of his little visions, and they had the uh, the one that involved Hitler in it. That was kind of. Um,
0: I'm you know. sorry. What?
2: Oh yeah, no. There's a Donald Duck and Hitler um, animation out there. Uh, yeah, there's
1: some real racist videos from World War One, World War Two, rather. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah,
2: World War uh, i I'm was
0: gonna, um,
1: yeah.
2: Go find this after the um, we're done recording here, and go watch it.
1: I'm- I would. I would be willing to lay money. You won't find it on Disney Plus.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's the one good thing about Disney. I mean, talking about it as a corporation, when they do mess up, they do try to cover their tracks. Yeah, they're like, let's bury this
1: real deep.
2: Or they build a ride after something that they decide to bury and then wonder why people get upset about it.
1: Cough, splash, mountain. <laughs> and
0: then they redesign it, which is better.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: All right, so we're like, so the war has happened. Disney has saved himself what's next?
2: So after the earnings, they were in debt for about $4 million overall, which crazy that did that. But Bank of America executives actually were trying to figure out what to do because they were watching them and they kept lending money, even knowing that it was just a complete financial risk. But the executives, they were like, no, 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 this is good. This is going to work out. Trust them, give them time. And ultimately that worked out. Disney stopped in the late 40s producing a lot of the short films and started working because they were getting more more competition from Warner Brothers and MGM. So what Roy suggested was they go more to animated and live-action productions and kind of get away from those shorts and going to more long-form stuff. In 48, they started making series of live-action nature films titled True Life Adventures, um, and Seal Island was the first one. And that actually won an Academy Award for the best short subject in 2 real category.
1: Huh. Was that because he was, like, when he went to Panama and Cuba and stuff, got obsessed with, like, nature and jungles and things?
2: That did have a, a pretty big impact in his life. As he got older, you know, we're now, you know, 40, you know, the 40s, late 40s.
0: How was he not dead by this point?
2: Cancer hadn't gotten him yet.
0: No, I'm just saying, like, he lived past 40. That's crazy. He didn't get TB. <laughs>
2: Well, there you go.
0: Why? <laughs> It was only Roy and they sent him away.
2: So he became incredibly conservative as he got older.
0: Oh God, come on. <laughs> to the
2: point where he wound up being a founding member of the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals.
0: Oh, oh you know who he would have been besties with Francis Lovecraft? Oh, God.
2: And then during the second Red Scare in 47, Walt actually testified before the House of Un-American Activities Committee, where he branded certain people the former animators of his labor union organizers as communist agitators.
1: He would have been very good friends with love. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible.
0: Wow. So maybe the shirts that we should get also have hashtag communist agitator on the back. Cool. Oh, that's really sad. No, what
2: we need is a hammer and sickle, but in shape of mouse ears. You know? There you <laughs> go.
0: There you go. Okay, so he turns his back on everyone. He does. Uh, he actually
2: blames the forty-one strike by his animators that it was an organized communist effort to gain influence in Hollywood.
0: This is feeling
1: real capitalist. Yeah. Maybe he did have TV, and it
0: affected his brain. Maybe he was just a white dude.
2: And then this, um, the New York Times reported this uh, in the early 90s, but it was not, it hasn't been confirmed, but it is heavily believed and seems mostly factual at this point that Walt was actually passing information to the FBI from the, from the early 40s until he died in the in 66.
1: What the fuck? Good God.
2: Um, In return for the information. Hoover actually allowed him to film in the Facebook... uh, Facebook. In FBI (laughs) headquarters in Washington. And Disney was also made a full special agent in in charge contact in 1954.
1: What the fuck does that mean? That's disgusting.
2: Yeah. so So that's the side of Walt that nobody really knows about, but it is part of his story, and I feel it's important that it is out there.
1: That's really upsetting.
2: It is, but it also ties into a lot of what ultimately... Went into to Disneyland. Um, part of the inspiration before he worked, before he started working on Disneyland, in his home he had moved in 1949. He had moved to his home in LA, and what he did with a couple of his friends, he built blueprints and actually went to create a mini steam engine uh, railroad for his backyard.
1: <laughs> I think I knew that. That's very cool.
2: Yeah, and it was the Carrollwood Pacific Railroad um, because his home's location was on Carrollwood Drive. And he and he worked with one of his engineers from Disney Studios and actually created um, the first mini steam engine that he had there. Eventually, after three years, there were a bunch of accidents involving people at his house and guests. So it basically got shut and like, we're done with this. Wait,
1: accidents? Wait, like adults or children?
2: It's just referred to as guests. Oh, is that detail? I, I don't know. I've never been able to find that. But that's always one tidbit that I've always found interesting is that, you know, he had his little railroad, which was the inspiration for the railroad at his parks. But yeah, you know, a lot of people got hurt, apparently. <laughs> there were lots of accidents.
1: You find out that like he would invite people over specifically so he could get on the train and like run them down.
2: Yeah, basically, he what what this isn't telling us is that he used to tie him down to the tracks. And he had a, <laughs> a handlebar mustache and would laugh maniacally and twirl it as the, the train life. was coming. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'll save you now. So after all of that, in 1950, he had produced Cinderella, which was the first ant like full length animated feature they had made in eight years. It was a hit. It cost 2.2 million to make, but it made eight million just in its first year alone. So that was also just a huge hit. He was actually less involved in that movie than he had been with a lot of the other ones because he was actually working on his first completely live-action movie, Treasure Island, uh, which was actually released in 1950 as well. And also the story of Robin Hood and his Merry Men, which was released in '52. And then all his other live-action features after that, or not all of them, but most of them, were very patriotic in theming uh, going forward. And he, uh, he also continued to produce a lot of the full-length movies, you know things that people know like Alice in Wonderland, Peter Pan. But as time went on, he started paying less and less attention to the animation department and let it do its own thing, uh, let the animators take care of it. You know The group of the nine old men, which is commonly referred to as the group of men that basically handle all his animation decisions for him. He was present at story meetings, but for the most part, he just started work, looking at other things one of those other things he wanted was actually to build a theme park. He had, he had visited Griffith park in LA with his daughters and he just wanted something that was going to be completely clean. Just this beautiful place that he could take his, his kids to and wanted other people to be able to do that as well. He on a visit to to Tivoli gardens in Copenhagen. um, He was actually, that really hit him in a way like he was heavily influenced by that park and the whole layout. So in 52, he actually got permission to build a, park, a theme park in Burbank, which was near the Disney Studios. Ultimately, that site was too small, so he wasn't able to work with what was there. At that point, that's when he was able to get the land in Anaheim, which was about 35 ish miles away uh, from the studio. And he was able to build that to, to build his park there. Uh, one of the things that he did, because he was worried about getting criticism from shareholders, he actually created a company called W.E.D. Enterprises, which is now Walt Disney Imagineering. This was actually the birth of the Imagineers. Um, he used his own money out of pocket to fund this group of designers and animators to work on the plans to become to create his park and to create his vision. Cool. In mid-1954, he sent his, his Imagineers out all around the country to go look at all the amusement parks that were around. He wanted to know what works, what doesn't work, what can we approve on. Great ideas. And he really wanted to make the best of what could be done. As going through all of that, he was able to create the blueprint for what he made with all the different lands that were there and it was all tied together by Main Street USA. And this goes back to his childhood where his hometown in Marceline, Missouri he modeled Main Street after his hometown because it was just kind of that nostalgia Americana feel that he was looking for. From there, the opening day in July 1955, there was an opening ceremony that was broadcast on ABC. That reached 70 million viewers. And you think about that number is just insane, especially nowadays where everything is so fragmented. But just to think that 70 million people sat and watched just... This park that, I mean, Walt uh, Disneyland was just a nothing name. It was like, yeah, it's Walt Disney. He makes movies and he's opening up a theme park. The fact that 70 million people watch that just shows the influence and the draw that Walt had himself about, you know, people were really interested in what he had done.
1: And there were only like, what, four TV stations or something.
0: So I get the feeling that the thesis of his life is like jazz hands. America.
2: Yeah, pretty much. I mean, or nowadays, it would just be America. All
0: right, so Disneyland, when does Disneyland open?
2: Um, it opened in 55. All right, so. And in after just a month of, of being open, it was already getting 20,000 visitors a day. And by the end of the first year, it had pulled in 3.6 million people.
0: Wait, isn't he about to die? No, in the 60s. It's 55 now.
2: He has 11 years left.
0: Okay, I I was freaking for a I was like, he built Disney and then just died.
2: <laughs> no, he had eleven years after that.
0: I mean, he didn't. That isn't that
1: kind of what happened with Florida. Like he built Disney and just kicked it.
2: He actually didn't even build Disney.
1: But he was like in on the planning, right? And then was like
2: initially, oh. yeah.
1: Okay, so sorry, I definitely jumped ahead a decade.
2: <laughs> he started. Things were going well, so he did a lot of work. Um, with ABC so they started making an anthology for creating animated cartoons live action features and that wound up doing well and to the point where the shows that they were doing was earning like a 50 percent share of audiences so Newsweek was calling what they were doing like an American institution and ABC was so pleased with the ratings they actually led to the first Disney's um, first daily television program which was the Mickey Mouse Club which was the variety show that he made for the you know to be sent you know, directed towards the kids and all of that going on. Like, it was just kind of building as things were going. So Disney kept working on a lot of other projects to the point where he started working on, ironically enough, the American national exhibition in Moscow to try to fight the communists. Okay. <laughs> what Disney um, studios, their contribution to that was, was a 19 minute 360 film called America, the beautiful. And okay. it was one of the most popular attractions. Okay. You okay there, Caitlin?
0: I'm, I'm, I've Take the
1: anti-communist stuff to the communists.
0: Well, no, I get, I get it. I just, like, how do I say this? I've never I've never loved my country as intimately as it seems Disney did.
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah. he. But he, li- as an adult, he lived through World War II, so that makes sense.
0: I've lived through so many crises.
1: But there's a difference between living through like the wars that we have lived through as adults and as, even as kids with access to so much information that's unfiltered. Fair. Versus living through a propaganda war, which is exactly what World War One and World War II were. And he was alive for both of them.
0: So what you're saying is that Disney should have gone and gotten a master's degree in English. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yes.
2: So after he had done that in 59 and was successful, he was actually, um, in 1960, he was the chairman for the pageantry committee for the Winter Olympics um, in California, and he designed the opening and closing medal ceremonies and the medal ceremonies there. So he really started branching out to that type of stuff.
1: I would love to see those. I bet they were cool.
2: Later on, he saw pieces of Lady and the Tramp, which was the first animated film using Cinemascope in 55. Sleeping Beauty, which is, was the first animated film in Technorama, a seventy millimeter film in fifty nine, and then Hundred One Dalmatians, which was the first animated film to use Xerox cells oh, in sixty one, oh. and then in sixty three he did Sword in the Stone. Then came sixty four, where he made he produced Mary Poppins. Yes. P. L. Travers completely hated the movie and yes, regretted did. selling um, selling the rights to Mary Poppins.
0: Oh, but that movie's so good. I had a Mary Poppins phase as a child.
1: I wanted her bag real bad. Yeah.
2: That same year, um, he also became involved in plans to help expand the California Institute of the Arts. He had an architect draw up blueprints for a new building for them, so he also helped kind of expand the campus there.
0: So he helped the CIA?
2: Yes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, In 64, Disney produced four exhibits for the World's Fair. Yeah. One of which um, would be the favorite of an unnamed producer of this podcast, it was It's a Small World. And that was the first time that it had appeared, was at the 64 World's Fair. The audio animatronic dolls with Children of the World. And they also had great moments with Mr. Lincoln, which was an animatronic, animatronic of Abraham Lincoln reading excerpts of his speeches. Carousel of Progress.
0: I love Carousel of Progress. Yes.
2: And then there was also Ford's Magic Skyway, which was, you know, to portray the progress of mankind. So all four of those exhibits were ultimately reinstalled at Disneyland. Um, But It's a Small World is really the only one of those that closely resembled what the original was. The others were just basically kind of picking up the concepts of those rides, but they were incorporated in. Hmm. As things were going on, Walt kept trying to expand expand the business. And he had ideas for, you know, he had announced plans in 65 to develop another theme park called Disney World that was going to be in Orlando that his... Um, He had worked to purchase a lot of land down there through shell companies and very quietly acquire the land so that people didn't know what was going on so that nobody could buy up land on him. And one of the big things he wanted to do there at the uh, Disney World was going to be the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Now, that may sound somewhat familiar to some people because that's Epcot. I feel like if
0: you're not a slut for Epcot, you are wrong.
1: Epcot is my favorite uh, amusement park in the entire world, and my parents genuinely considered joining the community when it was still going to be a Disney community.
2: That whole community that he wanted to make was going to just be, it was going to take all kinds of new technologies from all different sectors and just kind of make it a living, breathing, you know, just concept city to show what was possible with all these new technologies that were coming he actually got some businesses that were willing to sponsor Epcot and he was ready to, he was ready to, uh, you know, move forward with it. And then ultimately in 66, he, his health really started failing. And then ultimately in early November, 66, he was diagnosed with lung cancer later on November 30th. He wasn't feeling great. He was taken by ambulance, um, to the hospital and, um, on December 15th, uh, 10 days after he turned 65, he ultimately died of circulatory collapse that was caused by the cancer.
0: Jesus Christ. Yikes. So he had real bad cancer.
2: He did. Roy, at that point, actually came out of retirement to because Disney was going to get rid of um, Epcot. They were just going to do away with all of that, kind of do away with Walt Disney World. And they w- they weren't just going to go forward with it. Roy said, nope, this is happening. We're going to honor his legacy. So as part of the legacy that he did, Roy built Disney World, the Magic Kingdom at Disney World. And part of that property, it was just going to be called Disney World, but Roy was very adamant that it needed to be called Walt Disney World so that people would remember the name Walt Disney and know that he was the one, the inspiration behind it. It was his vision. So Magic Kingdom first opened uh, in 71. And then ultimately the plans that um, Roy was able to get, you know, Walt's vision of the functional city for Epcot in 82, it they went away from the the prototype for the city and they ultimately built something that was more reminiscent of a world's fair, which Roy felt was more fitting for an amusement park and could just kind of be honoring Walt's legacy for his work with, with the world's fair and things that he wanted to do. So that was really the inspiration behind you know, you had Future World in front with a lot of the future tech. You had all the countries that you could go visit. And it was just kind of that whole World's Fair feeling is what they were going for.
1: And it's got the, like, the kernel that was Epcot. Like, it's got, like, the technological innovation and, like, stuff in the, the land and sea rides and stuff. Where it's okay. talking about, like, the the way that Disney's, like, doing agricultural innovation and stuff. So...
0: So Walt's, Walt's dead, and Walt Disney still becomes famous.
2: Yeah, and actually, he's, his vision for Walt Disney World was ultimately fulfilled by his brother, and that's where things, things just kind of went from there. and They've expanded the parks from there, and ultimately, there's the, um, there is a museum all about Walt Disney that is in Presidio um, of San Francisco. So there's a whole museum, too, Walt, that's dedicated out there. and uh,
1: I didn't know that. Yep. Yeah, the Walt Disney World Museum. You can get on their mailing list.
0: You know this because you're on their mailing list? I am
1: 100% on their mailing list.
2: And one other thing, after Walt had passed, the Disney animation, for the most part, went away. They really stopped making things after Walt was gone. And that wasn't until the Disney Renaissance that really started with The Little Mermaid in 89 where Disney came back with a vengeance and started making a lot of just those movies that resonate more with people our age, you know, just because we, we grew up with those movies. But there was just a big gap there, probably a 20 year gap where they really weren't churning out anything in terms of animation. It was really the parks that were doing their thing.
1: The little mermaid. It was my absolute favorite Disney animated film until Moana came out.
2: Yeah. I love that movie. It was a very good one.
1: Yes. And I'm so excited for the Lindman while Miranda live action one.
0: I feel like we should give a bit of a spoiler here. And that's that the three of us have actually not been to Walt Disney's grave. Yes. We actually had a listener submit his grave photo and kind of propose the idea of talking about him. Francis, what was that? Our listener's name? It was
1: uh, it was a girl named Gillian Wang.
0: What's a great name, isn't it? <laughs> so, Dan, what can you tell us about Walt Disney's burial, apart from the fact it's not under a castle?
1: Sorry, can we rewind that one yeah. sec? It was a woman named Gillian Wang. I said girl. She's thirty-two.
0: I can say that uh, Dan and I are actually planning a pilgrimage to California next year, but. Dan, what what is Walt Disney's grave looks like? Is it like, is it just a giant bust of his head? <laughs> that would be so good.
2: Well, it's because they cut his head off to freeze it, so they just put a mold around it, and then they just kind of went from there. So they just lifted it off his head and filled it up. Yeah, that's
0: like all a um, all a Car- Karl Marx. It's just like a giant. Now, what does his grave look like?
2: It's just very understated. It's just uh, he. He, because he's not actually buried there, it's just his, his ashes are interred there um, at the Forest Lawn Memorial Park. So it's just this normal little, you know, memorial that you would see for anybody mm-hmm. else. There's nothing really super crazy or special about his, um, his site.
0: All right. So I guess this is an interesting one for us because basically we have a person whose life I feel like was bigger and grander than their death. Like they continued to live on. They continue to be known for more things they feel after their death than they were before. I would make that argument.
2: Yeah, most people at this point would not necessarily associate the animation piece as being the big part of Walt Disney, but it's the it's all the parks and the entertainment and the travel and all that type of stuff as opposed like that's really what the company has become in focus and that's what keeps the company going. The movies and other stuff are you know, part of the portfolio, but not the main part anymore.
0: I feel like this is an interesting one because like we do, like I said, have this intersection of like Disney adults and weird kids. And I, I'm excited to go like actually visit Disney's grave, even if it is small since it's just his ashes. But I mean, the thing is, you know, we talk a lot about this podcast about the people who've been forgotten. And this is someone who I feel like didn't actually die. Yeah. Yeah. Like they cease to
2: exist. Walt has been forgotten, yeah. Because for the most part, it's you. When people think of Disney World, they don't think of the man. They think of Mickey Mouse. They think of the parks. They think of the character interactions. Okay. You're not thinking about Walt. I mean, Walt has his 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 statue with Mickey, but aside from that, I mean, it's, I mean, not a lot of people know about you know that the light left on on Main Street, you know, for Walt's you know his apartment. Essentially, like that's an yeah. homage to him and things like that, where it's like, Walt just, he exists. He's the reason all of this exists, but people don't really associate him or think of him directly when they think of the parks.
1: He was also a Catholic, which I didn't realize until today. Um, yeah, he's been erased. Or like overlaid.
0: Oh, I think overlaid is a good word. I hadn't actually thought of that, to be honest with you both. Like, because Disney, like, Disney, 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 you say it all the time, and mm. I guess you're right, probably, well, like, 90% of people wouldn't actually associate it with Walt. Yeah.
2: Yeah, if you just, if you just went up and asked somebody, who's Walt Disney?
0: they are probably be like, you mean the parks?
2: Or, like, the guy who created the parks or whatever, like, would they really know who the Walt Disney the person was?
0: Yeah,
1: I feel like most people wouldn't be able to tell you a single fact about him, except he's the guy who founded Disney.
0: I actually believed until a few years ago that he had like built Disney World. I didn't really see it died before, so it's it's interesting to me that like all of these little facts are coming out. So, I guess in a way we got to kind of tell another side of the Disney. I don't know compound. But it's also
2: we we told the good and the bad.
0: Yeah. Because
2: yeah. there's there are a lot of aspects of Walt's life which are not great. And I don't think that those should be glossed over or hidden. It's to get a full measure of the man. That's that's who he was. And that was part of who he was.
0: I think when I do see his grave in person, I'm going to like lay down some flowers and just whisper really softly, um, I voted for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> but to finish this episode, um, first off, I want to thank you, Dan, so much for coming to, to chat with us about this. I actually learned a lot and I didn't expect to just because I've been on a deep disney dive before but I, I learned a lot how about you francis
1: yeah absolutely it was it was really really good so thanks for coming wow
2: glad to be here and to help educate and disney di- i mean you've done your disney dives caitlin but you haven't done walt disney dives
0: apparently yeah. not apparently I, I i think that's what i learned today is that disney and walt disney are going to be two different things and it's it's up to you to kind of figure it out and fill in the holes but with that I just want to take a moment to end this podcast with a quote. And this quote is from Richard and Robert Sherman. And it is simply, it is a world of laughter, a world of tears. It is a world of hopes and a world of fears. There's so much that we share. That's time. We're aware. It's a small world after all. Oh, (laughs) Oh, We'll see you in the cemetery. Grave Escapes is hosted, written, and produced by Caitlin Owl and Frances Grace Ferland. It's produced and edited by Jesse D. Creighton. The music is Melancholy Aftersounds by Kai Engel. Follow us on social media to see images of today's graves and more about us. Our social handle is Grave Escapes. For a transcript, show notes, and land acknowledgement, visit us online at www.graveescapes.com. We'll see you in the cemetery.
1: We'd like to acknowledge that we recorded this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wampanoag, Poconokit, and Narragansett peoples. Here in the Northeast and all across the country, Native peoples are still here and thriving. For more information about Indigenous history, we've added a link in the show notes to an Indigenous people's history of the United States as a place to begin. For ways to support Native leaders and communities, we've added links to both the North American Indian Center of Boston and the Native Land Conservancy.